Let's get our Bibles. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And I will tell you that uh, as we were taking up our offering this morning, I was thinking about the fact that this last week we had our um, annual uh, state convention in uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia. And at that uh, convention, Good Shepherd was acknowledged and honored as a top giver, uh, cooperative program giver, uh, and uh, for churches of 150 or more. So congratulations on uh, your, uh, your honoring there. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, another reason why we as the church of God shall prevail. And that's a wonderful thing to, to realize and to know. And we're going to be talking about specifically about being a spirit-led church. Now, chapter 13 is a turning point in the book of Acts. It's what Winston Churchill would call one of the hinges of history because it marks the beginning of the third and final phase of the Lord's Great Commission. You'll remember in uh, chapter uh, 1 of Acts, as it, as it opens up, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave us this Great Commission in, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, there there are two things that he tells us there. He tells us how, by what kind of power we are going to be his witnesses. That is, we are going to have the power of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish the, the commission that he has given us. And then he tells us, he outlines geographically how that's going to happen. It's going to begin in Jerusalem. Then it's going to go to Samaria and Judea, and then it's going to go to the othermost parts of the earth. And in chapter 13, we see the beginning of this third phase of of going to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's also the beginning of the apostleship of, of Paul. And he, is, he was called to be an apostle when he was converted on the road to Damascus. But up until now, he hasn't really acted like an apostle. He hasn't really taken that leadership role. But now some 11 or 12 years later, after his conversion, Paul emerges as an apostle. And he is going to carry out the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he's not alone in this ministry. Um, in, in Acts chapter 11, we're introduced to the church at Antioch. And, and the church at Antioch is the first beachhead of a church in the, in the Gentile world, the pagan Roman world. And God is going to use this church to take the gospel beyond Antioch into the remotest regions of the earth. Now, I want you to see real quickly how that church at Antioch came into being. If you look back to chapter 11, verse 19, for just a moment, we'll see this. He says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he had arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain faithful to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and for an entire year, They met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So here is this this church being established in Antioch. Chapter 13, we pick up and see what's happening there. Verse 1, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salmas, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as, far as Paphos, they found the magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, And this man summons Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened and was being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have preserved this part of history for us in your word to help us to know how it all began and and how you worked in those early days. And Father, we come to you this morning asking you to help us to be a spirit-led church to be obedient to you and see the incredible things that you did in that early days to be done even in our time. 
We ask you, Lord, to just to encourage our hearts and strengthen us so that we may be obedient to you and you may be glorified. And we ask these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when the early believers first scattered because of the persecution that Saul was bringing upon the church, you remember that in reading about that in, in chapter 8, some of those that were scattered went to Antioch. Now that's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And they ended up there and they actually be, that's where they actually began to uh, establish a church. Uh, Antioch had a population of about a half a million people. So it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and, and Alexandria. And um, it, was a, it was really, it was an ancient metropolis. And so the, the magnificent buildings that were there uh, helped uh, get its name. They called it Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. It, its, its main city was about four miles long, and it was paved with marble. And on each side, there were marble colonnades all the way down that street. And it was the first ancient city in the history of the world to have its streets lighted at night. And it, was, it glowed, and it was called the, the, the Golden City. And um, Antioch was a really busy port. It was a hub. All this commerce, trade came through there, really cosmopolitan. And, and it was known for, for its, its luxury and for its culture. But it was also a wicked city. Because there in that place, every ancient god was worshipped. There was something for them. But the most prominent temple of that time was the temple to Daphne. And the worship of Daphne involved incredibly immorality, the use of temple prostitutes, and all of that kind of thing. So with its, with its large cosmopolitan population with its uh, uh, commerce and trade, and with its political power. The city of Antioch uh, presented to the, to the church at Antioch this, this great challenge and this great opportunity to preach the gospel to the pagan world. Now, initially, when those believers arrived, they were preaching the word only to the Jews, but some of them said, well, why are we just preaching to the Jews? Why don't we preach to the, to the pagans as well, the, the Greeks? And they began to preach the Lord Jesus to them, it says. And you know what? There was an incredible response. All kinds of people began to turn to the Lord. And when the church in, in Jerusalem heard about it, well, they sent Barnabas up there to check it out, see what's going on. And when he arrived, well, he was just amazed at what God was doing in this city of pagan people. It was almost unbelievable. And so he begins to encourage these believers to remain faithful. You see, because there was everything there to pull them back into the world. And and very soon, Barnabas began to realize, man, this is more than I can handle. So he leaves and goes to Tarsus, finds Paul, brings him back. And they, too, spend an entire year there teaching and establishing the church. 
Now, this church is, is not only going to be established doctrinally, but boy, they're going to be a church that God is going to use to send out, eventually, Paul and Barnabas as the first missionaries into the rest of the pagan world. So this is an amazing thing that happens here at Antioch. And when we come to, to chapter 13, one of the things that we see is that uh, the effectiveness of this church was due to the fact that they were a spirit-led church. The, the Holy Spirit is all through this. The, 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 that phrase, the Holy Spirit, appears 41 times in the book of Acts. Four of those times occur right here when we read in the passages today. Four times. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, launching the gospel into the pagan world. And this church now becomes a model for future churches, the pattern for a church that is spirit-led and a church that reaches out with the gospel to the world. And so it's really important to understand what it means to be a spirit-led church. Uh, in our text today, we can see five characteristics of a spirit-led church, five characteristics First of all, a, a spirit-led church esteems spiritual leaders. If you look in verse 1, you'll see that it says that in Antioch, in the church that was there, there were prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. And they're named Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with the te- uh, Herod the, the Tetrarch, and Saul. You see, a spirit-led church will inevitably have godly leaders in place. God always places a premium on spiritual leadership. You don't go anywhere in the Bible that you don't see that God has a godly person leading the way. And that's one of the reasons that when we come to the New Testament that there's very clear guidelines for selecting spiritual leaders for the qualifications and exactly what they do. And five men are listed here as being spiritual leaders in the church at Antioch and they're the, they're the heart of the ministry there. And they're highly esteemed by the church because of the work that they do. It says that they were, they, were, they were honored and they were respected because they were prophets and teachers. Now, prophets, like uh, apostles, were primarily preachers of the Word of God. They were preachers of the revelation that God had already given. And at times, sometimes, they actually did receive uh, new revelation. For example, at the end of Acts chapter 11, there's a man by the name of, of Agabus who predicts that there's going to be a worldwide famine. And it's especially going to be hard on the people in Judea. And of course, we know that actually occurred in the, uh, in the, in the reign of Claudius, the emperor, emperor Claudius. Then uh, in Acts chapter 21, Agabus appears again, and he's kind of like an Old Testament prophet. He binds his, his hands up, and he presents a, a prophecy to the apostle Paul, and he says, you're going to be bound over and handed to the Gentiles. And we know that prophecy was 100% accurate. But the, but the prophets were primarily proclaimers of the revelation that God had already given to 
the people through the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you see, they were more foretellers than foretellers. And so they proclaimed this truth as, as prophets with divine authority, with uh, a confidence that what they're saying is really true, that this is the word of God. And that authority doesn't come from them. It comes from the word that they are proclaiming. And so listen very carefully because people get confused about this all the time. There are no apostles today. In order to be an apostle, you had to have been with the Lord Jesus. So there are no apostles today. And there are no prophets in the sense that there are people who are receiving new revelation. God has already given us his revelation right here in the Bible. The Bible that you hold in your hand is God's complete, inerrant, infallible, and totally sufficient truth. This is everything that you need. And so that office of a prophet has been passed on now to pastor teachers, to evangelists who do what? What do they do? They simply take the revelation that has been given and they proclaim it and they explain it. That's the way it works. And this is is very essential for every church to have that building up of faith and the understanding of the truth. So this is the prophets that were were respected and honored. Then there are teachers and the teachers have this ministry of, you know, of, of really of, of giving a clear understanding of the truth to other people. Teaching is distinguished from preaching in that it, it focuses on pedagogy as, a, as opposed to proclamation. Pedagogy is teaching, instruction, it's um, 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 training. It's the practical kind of things. It's often based on reasoning and giving us information that supports and and so that we can understand, so we have a basis for our understanding. Uh, A lot of times when I'm preaching, we call this preaching, many, many times people say, that was good teaching. Or they'll say, you know, you're a teacher. And that's true. Sometimes you're proclaiming and sometimes you're, you're teaching. Right now I'm kind of teaching. So, you see, these men could do both. They could be prophets and teachers. But, but the focus is the truth of God's Word. And it was because of this ministry of the Word that the church esteemed them. Paul later says this in Fest. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in the Lord, in love because of their work. You see, he's saying esteem them because of their work, their work in the ministry, not because they personally are worthy, but because of the work that they do, because of their explanation and proclamation of God's word. And I I don't want to tell you, you know, as as Pastor Travis said earlier, um, Karen and I, and and I know Tiana and Travis, we are are very grateful 
for the, uh, for the honoring that we received last week, for, you know, a meal and for the encouragement, for your gifts and cards. We're just, we're just extremely grateful for that. Uh, you, don't, you don't realize sometimes how much that really means. Do you know, I, I go to a convention and I talk to, to pastors, you know, from around our state, and there are pastors that don't get that. There are pastors that are, that are struggling, that are, that are having difficult times, uh, and, and we are treated incredibly well here, and we want you to know we are grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. So there, there are these men that were there, we know something about them, a little bit anyway. We know something about Barnabas. Uh, we know that he was from the island of Cyprus. We know that his, uh, his birth name was Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So whenever you got around Barnabas, you know, you were going to be encouraged. You ever had those people, you know, those kind of people? Whenever you're around them, boy, you're going to be encouraged. Yeah, well, he was one of those kind of people. Uh, Barnabas was also one of the guys that introduced the Apostle Paul to the church at Jerusalem because they were suspicious of him. They didn't think he was really a converted Christians. And, and he brought him into the, to the fellowship there. Barnabas also is the one who went and got, uh, went, went to uh, Antioch to check out what was happening with the Gentiles there. The, the church respected him, honored him, sent him up there because they, they trusted him. Then Barnabas went and got Paul, brought him back to the ministry and got him involved. And finally, Barnabas and Paul, they were the ones that carried the, the relief offering from the church in Antioch to the, to the area of Judea where the people were suffering because of the famine. So we know quite a bit about Barnabas, but the, the next three guys that are, that are listed, we don't know much about them at all. There's uh, Simon who was called Niger. Now, Niger is a word that simply means black. And it was used, this term was used to describe an area of North Africa that we know today as Nigeria. So many prophets feel like that, or excuse me, uh, commentators feel like that this um, man was, a, was from North Africa, a black man, and that he had uh, uh, come there into this metropolitan area. And this was an opportunity, you see, for the gospel to go into Africa. There's also a, a man named uh, Lucius, and he's also identified with a city in North Africa called Cyrene. So it's possible we got two men from North Africa. And then Manan, he's notable because it says that he was actually brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He, that word brought up with means uh, to be uh, a foster brother. He, he was brought up in the same house. He was her, brought up in Herod the Great's household alongside Herod Antipas. Remember the guy that we read about last week? So he was a nobleman. Now look what we're, what we're getting. We're getting a real diversity in the leadership. Because why? Because Antioch is going to be a church of diversity. All kinds of different people and all kinds of personalities that go with it. And God is preparing this church to reach out to the world. And then, of course, there's, there's Saul of Tarsus who needs no introduction through his tireless efforts. So he took the, the gospel to, throughout the Gentile world. These, these five men were esteemed by the church there at Antioch. Secondly, a spirit-led church exercises spiritual ministry. Now, look at verse 2. He says, while they were ministering to the Lord 
and fasting. Now, the responsibility of spiritual leadership is spiritual ministry. That's what we're all supposed to do. We're all supposed to do spiritual ministry. And these leaders at Antioch, they understood that mandate. In fact, they patterned themselves after the apostles in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4. Because you remember there, they said, we must, we must dedicate ourselves to prayer and to the word. Those are always and ever the priorities of the man of God. Prayer and the word. That has to be the priority. And friends, listen, whether it's me or whether it's another pastor in the future, that person's priority should be prayer and the word. You need to understand that. You need to never forget that. That is the absolute priority. And the word ministering here is not that word diakonos, like from deacons, to serve. But it's a word that, was, uh, that originally meant to discharge a public office. And it's the idea that, that, they are, that you are competently carrying out the job that you were assigned to do. You're, you're doing what you should be doing, in other words. And so, but, in, but in Scripture, ministering means more than public service. It, it, it describes priestly service. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament... That word is used to describe priests carrying out their ministry in the temple. In other words, serving in a, in a church, in a local ministry, should be seen as an act of worship to God. You, do you realize that if you're serving in a leadership role, that you are serving God? Yeah, you're not just serving other people, you're serving God. And that is an act of worship in your life. It's the kind of spiritual service that's talked about in Hebrews chapter 13, where it calls it spiritual sacrifices, where it may be prayer, it may be shepherding the flock, it may be studying, preaching, or teaching, or some other kind of service. And see, and this is what the leaders were doing. Now, this is important for you to understand this, that they were being faithful in their lives to carry out what God asked them to do. They were busy. They were being faithful. And and notice this, that the ministering was not to the congregation, but it says to the Lord. It's crucial to understand that God is the audience in this room. Who are we talking to? Who are we singing to? Are we singing for people out there? No, we're singing to God. Who are we praying to? We're praying to God. And you see, who, if your goal becomes to please people, then you're, you're subject to compromise. When I'm standing up here, I can't, I can't worry about what, if people are going to like what I say. I have to worry about if God is going to like what I say. He's the one that I'm preaching in behalf of. And, and you're the, he's the one that you're serving in behalf of. So, so pleasing the Lord has to be the object of our ministry. So we had, we had to be like the Macedonian believers. Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 8, 5. He says, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. 
Keep it in order. It come, God first, and then it goes out. It, it affects, trickles down to others. And in uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, 2, uh, 2, we ought to know that from Awana. He says, you, what we do, we must present ourselves, be diligent to present ourselves to the Lord. A workman, not ashamed, approved by God, Right? Uh, he's the one that we're trying to please. And then spirit-led believers do their work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for men. Because why? Because it's the Lord Christ whom we serve. Friends, when we forget who we're really serving, we're subject to compromise. And I don't, I don't mean when I'm just, just when I'm standing up here, I mean when we're doing the simplest things. I mean when we're sweeping the floor after an upward game or when we're handing someone a concession at the concession stand. Whatever we are doing, we are doing it as unto the Lord heartily because it's him that we serve. Now, it's interesting that they were not only being faithful to the ministry God called them, it said they were fasting. Fasting is always associated with deep spiritual concern. It's when we get to the place that we are so concerned about what God wants and what God is doing that we're willing to forego everyday needs and desires in our life. It's when we get so concerned about what we want to see God do or what God is trying to accomplish that we would set aside eating. See, we don't... We don't Stop eating, thinking, well, you know, that'll make me more spiritual. Not eating doesn't, doesn't do anything. It's the heart. You see, that's what it reflects. It reflects the heart that is concerned about what God is concerned about. When, we, when our hearts are so overwhelmed by that, that nothing else really matters. That's, when fa- that's what fasting is all about. And remember, the Bible doesn't tell us that we have to fast. It's just assumed. Jesus assumed that his, his followers would do it. He gives us very specific instructions about it. And he tells us, listen, it's not something you do to be seen of men, but it's something that's for God's eyes. God sees your heart when you're fasting. This is all about, again, God. So fasting is about intense desire to know God's will and to experience his power and grace in our lives and in our church. And it was when these spiritual leaders were faithfully carrying out their spiritual ministry and intensely seeking God's leadership that the Holy Spirit spoke. Now, friends, that's the way it always is. We're being faithful, but we're also seeking God. That's when we'll hear from God. You know, there are many people today that, that are looking to God to lead them in some, you know, dramatic way. Uh, they think, you know, if I go hole up in a cave somewhere and just sit there and, and listen, well, maybe God will speak to me. Or if I go up on a mountain somewhere and just get away from everything, that, that maybe God will speak to me in a, in a real, really dramatic way. I'll hear God say something to me. But you know what? That probably will never happen because the Spirit doesn't usually work that way. I mean, it's possible that he could do that. Uh, but most of the time when God speaks to us, he speaks to us in the midst of our obedience 
to him and of our openness to hearing from him. That's when God speaks. God finds people that are busy, and that's who he chooses to, to do his work. Have you, have you ever uh, been in a car that was stalled, couldn't get the engine going, and you needed to pull it off the road? You ever been there? Have you ever tried to turn the steering wheel of a car? It won't, the engine's not running. Man, it, it's hard. You can already turn that. But when somebody gets behind you and starts pushing, when that car gets moving, you can turn the wheel. That's kind of the way we are. When we're busy doing what God wants us to do, and I don't mean busy in busy sense, but when we're, when we're being obedient to what God wants us to do, that it's much easier for God to direct us in what it is that we're going to do. And see, that, that brings us to our, our, our third uh, point here. A, a spirit-led church engages in spiritual missions. Look again at verse, the last part of verse 2. He says, the Holy Spirit said... Here's the, after all this happened, the Holy Spirit speaks, and he said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, friends, spiritual people engage in spiritual ministry, and that is when God speaks. He said, Set aside for me Paul and Barnabas. If a quarterback on a football team gets injured and he can't play, Anymore, he can't come back in the game. Where does the coach look for, for the next quarterback? Does he look up in the stands and say, yeah, hey, you, you look like you might be able to be a good quarterback. Come on down here. Get on the field. Get some pads on, and we'll put you in the game. Does he, does he look there? No. Where does he look? He looks on the sidelines. He looks to a guy who has already gone through the conditioning, who is already dressed, who, who has been, who knows the plays, who has been practicing with the team. He just doesn't have the experience, but, but he has the know-how. That's the guy that he calls off the sidelines and puts him into the game. And friends, in a, in a similar way, it's rare that God would ever pull an idle Christian off the shelf, dust them off, and put, give them important work. It just doesn't happen that way. God finds the people that are faithful already and he puts them into the game. So you understand, this is the Spirit's choice of men. This is the Spirit's plan and this is the Spirit's timing. We're not told exactly how it occurs, but it says in verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. In modern terms, this was, a, this was a commissioning service for two missionaries. This was the, the church acknowledging that they are called of God and we are sending them out with our support, with our encouragement. And it says in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. There's, look, notice how many times we've seen the Holy Spirit in there. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salmas, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So they begin in Antioch. Let's put our map up there. You can kind of see that general region that we're talking about. Now we're going to go close up so you can see that a little better. And here they start at 
Antioch, they go down to Seleucia, they sail across uh, the waters to Salamis, and then they go the entire distance of that uh, little island, about 90 to 100 miles, and they're at the, at the capital city of Paphos. And it says that, Ball, uh, that Saul, uh, Paul and Saul, uh, Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, were, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. But notice that it doesn't specify where they're supposed to go. Isn't that interesting? He says, I want you to go, but he didn't tell them exactly where to go. You know who made that decision? Paul and Barnabas. Now, why would Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus? Well, several reasons, possibly. I mean, think about it. Uh, Cyprus was pretty close there to Antioch, relatively speaking. Cyprus was also Barnabas' hometown. That's where he's from. So it's familiar territory. There was also a very large group of Jews that had synagogues there on that little island. It made sense. It's a logical starting place for, for them. And so arriving at, this, at this, uh, this, this place, they go into the synagogue and they begin to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. And now this became Paul's pattern throughout all of his, his, his uh, missionary journeys. Why does he do that? Well, because he's got an immediate uh, attachment, an immediate place of familiarity. Because he's a Jew. They're Jews. They respect the Old Testament scriptures. And what does Paul specialize in? He specializes in taking the Old Testament and showing them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the predictions about the Messiah. And that's where he begins, with the Jewish people. But then he goes out from the Jewish people to the Greeks. And that's what Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes, unto the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. This is the way he did it. And what is he doing? He's, he's engaging in mission, and he's following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. See, there are many people today have this mistaken idea of, as to how the Holy Spirit's going to lead them. See, some, some Christians have this idea that we're just robots, that we respond to some kind of electronic pulse that comes into our life, and we're sitting there waiting for God to, to give us a signal. You know what? It doesn't work like that. Uh, to put it in, uh, into today's vernacular, the Holy Spirit does not micromanage your life. He doesn't tell you everything, every single thing that you're supposed to do. He doesn't tell you if you're supposed to have sausage or bacon for breakfast. He uses your life because he created you. He made you unique. He uses your own personality. He uses your own set of gifts and abilities. He uses your own geographic location. He uses your own job. He uses you in whatever way you are unique. He uses that to reach out into the world. And, you, and the, what he does want you to know is that he does reside in you. He lives in you and he is there. Sometimes he directs us very directly, very specifically. And when he does, we should not ever ignore that. But oftentimes, God allows us to use our own judgment, our own decisions, our own abilities. But in it all, he is there. 
You know, it's like that song we sing, I know who stands before me and I know who stands behind me. And he's always right there. In fact, he's not just by my side, friend. He is in you. He dwells in you. And he will lead you. And he leads you even by your own desires. You know, when you're, when you're doing what's right, when you're being obedient, God even gives you the right desires. Well, when you're disobedient, you can't count on anything for sure. When you're obedient, you can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and it's an exciting life. It's surprising. It may amaze you what the Holy Spirit brings into your life, who he brings into your life, encounters that you may have. It can be thrilling. It can be exhilarating when we're intentional. So follow the leading of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. You see, nobody could really, who, who, did anybody have this grand plan in mind about how they're going to reach the Roman world? Was there, was there a, an international mission board that was deciding all of that? Well, these people were the first international mission board. And so they're following this and the following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and number four, a, a spirit-led church experiences spiritual opposition. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, this, this mission team had come to Paphos, which was famous for its worship of Aphrodite or Venus. And again, this is another one of those cults that, that in, it used um, um, immorality, temple prostitutes, it was a, you know, it was a, it was kind of like the pornography of our day. It was dragging people in and, and dominating their lives and controlling them. And, but even so, God is at work. And see, this proconsul Sergius Paulus, he hears about what Paul and Barnabas are doing, and he's a man of intelligence. And he, and he recognizes the the strength and the truth in it. And he says, "Man, I want to hear from these guys." But when they go to to share with Sergius Paulus, they find themselves being opposed by this magician named Eliamus. Now, Eliamus actually means magician in the Greek. And he, in other words, he's giving this name to himself. He's saying, I'm a magician. But really, he's, a, he's simply a, um, he's a deceiver, and he's a dabbler in the occult. But he also has, Luke tells us, a Hebrew name. His Hebrew name is Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar means son or son of, Simon Barjona. Or, uh, and today, you know, it's like when you have Peter's son or John's son. It's, it's, it would be son John, <laughs> son of John. That's what it is, you see. And this, and this is what bar really means. It means son of Jesus. And in the Hebrew culture, if you said you were the son of John, it means you had his characteristics, you had his likeness, you had his essence. He's saying, I'm just like Jesus, but in reality, he was nothing like Jesus. In reality, he was using the name of Jesus 
as authority, as identification, but he was teaching the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. He's one of the, he's one of the first uh, Christian cultists who seizes upon the name of Jesus, upon the name of, of Christianity in order to propagate their false teaching. And since that day, there have been many uh, false teachers like that. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, what do they do? They take the name of Jesus, they use its authority, its identification, and they use that to propagate their own false teaching. So here is this man who is opposing the uh, proclamation of the gospel and it's and it's no accident that he is that he has attached himself to the Roman proconsul because you see the kingdom of darkness is always eager to be in the place of ruling power today we recognize that government is one of the most corrupt places on earth today we call it the swamp and do you know why because it's the place where Satan loves to go because that's a place where he can influence and dominate and control. And he was, he was there. He was using this man to oppose the gospel. Satan always opposes the gospel wherever it is. And, and much of the evil in this world can be traced ultimately to the malevolent influence that Paul causes the spiritual forces of wickedness In the heavenly places. Friends, you and I would do well to remember that when we are talking to someone about Jesus Christ, that we are in a spiritual battle with the forces of hell trying to keep that person from coming to Jesus. It's a battle, a spiritual battle. Don't take it lightly. And you see, Paul and Silas are now battling for the soul of Sergius Paulus. But before I go on, let me just tell you something that's even more disturbing. External attacks by Satan are everywhere and they are common. But external attacks are often less damaging than internal attacks. It's not surprising That we see in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, he says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we don't know why John Mark left. We don't know what all happened. Now his leaving did not stop the gospel from going to the Gentile people. But I want to tell you what it did do. It split up a great, successful missionary team. It caused a great division. And and you need to understand that internal division and dissension and disunity continue to this day to be perhaps the greatest force opposing the spread of the gospel. Churches all over America are divided and torn up and disrupted so much so they can't even think about reaching out because they got their own battle right there in their little group. 
And I will tell you that Satan loves to go to the seat of government, but he loves to come and dwell in churches too. And he does. He does. He has his seat in a lot of churches. So a spirit-led church gets past that and engages in spiritual mission. And finally, a spirit-led church enjoys spiritual victories. This is my, this is my favorite part of all this. <laughs> he says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is again. We can't get away from the Holy Spirit, can we? Fixed his gaze on him and said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the way, the straight ways of the Lord? See, the, the battle for uh, Sergius Paulus' soul has reached its climax, and Paul has had enough. He's not pulling any punches. And he says, you are not, you're not bar Jesus, you're not the son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. You're an enemy to all righteousness. You are the one who is trying to distort and make crooked the way of the Lord. But, you know, Bar-Jesus doesn't get away with just a merely a tongue lashing. He says in verse 11, But now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And the last verse, here it is. Then the proconsul believes. He believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching. Notice what he was amazed at. Was he amazed at what happened to, to Bar Jesus? He was a man of intelligence. He was amazed at the teaching of the gospel. Here's, here's the question I want to ask you in closing. Why was this event from the ministry at Antioch selected out and recorded for us by the Holy Spirit? Why has he preserved this for us? Several reasons. One of those is that he's he's giving us the picture of of a model church that is a spirit-led church. That's, that's engaging in all that God has called them to do. They have leaders which the, the people esteem and they're following because they're teaching the word of God. Uh, they are engaging in, in spiritual ministry. They're experiencing uh, spiritual ministry. They're, they're, they're engaging in spiritual mission. Now they are certainly experiencing um, opposition as well. But they're also seeing great success, victories, spiritual victories. And, and here in the midst of this, the Apostle Paul suddenly becomes the Apostle Paul. Up until this time, he has not been acting like an apostle. But now he steps up and he takes on this new role. Now all of a sudden he's doing very much like what Peter did with Ananias and Sapphira when they were going to, to deceive the, the church. And, and remember, this man uh, calls a curse upon him. And then it's immediate. That's not something that you and I can do 
But it's something that Paul did, and this becomes the first of many signs of an apostle that he would do to show that he was indeed called by God to lay the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the church in the future. To be an inspired writer of Scripture. God is, is validating this man's ministry here. And he, he emerges. And that all, everything changes after chapter 13. Now no longer is it Barnabas and Paul. It's Paul and Barnabas. And here this church is going to emerge. Going to send out missionaries all over the known world at that time and take the gospel to every place. There's a pattern. There are a pattern. And I, I, I want you to know that God calls us to be a spirit-led church. Could I get an amen? Do you all, I mean, you all think that. Is God really calling us to be a spirit-led church? Can we be a spirit-led church? We can we really can. And so I want to encourage you, listen, continue, continue to follow the leadership of the Word of God. Make your priority in your life prayer and the Word of God. And then once you take that Word that you've studied and learned, then begin to practice it with spiritual ministry, using it, obeying it. Now, when you do, God is going to open up doors for your life. God's going to give you places to minister you never would have imagined you could have gone. He's going to open up for you opportunities to present the priest's three circles, to talk to people about Jesus. Now, when you start doing that, you can guarantee you're going to experience some opposition. S- Satan doesn't like it when we're obedient, when we share the gospel. But that's one of the key indicators that we're doing what God wants us to do. But even so, we will begin to enjoy many spiritual victories. And God will receive the glory as we do so. So let's seek to follow the Lord as as a spirit-led church. Let's pray.